You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. That's the... Wow, this feels like a bonfire night with everybody here on the beach. Oh, Sue, we should totally have a bonfire. It's okay, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. We are on a burn ban. Oh, Remember? I Remember? found Burning Man, a weekend-long, no. large-scale uh, no, no, event no, 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 no. annually in Black Rock City, Nevada. No, 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 Mary, Mary, Mary. Burn ban. Burn ban. Did you mean bourbon? A type of no. barrel-aged American no. whiskey Th- no. made primarily from corn, no. otherwise known as maize. No, 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 but thank you anyway for trying, Mary. Thanks, thank Shannon. Trying. It's oh. so great to see you. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so good to see you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you've been super busy at the anger hut, though, right? Oh, yeah, off the charts. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. lots of anger right now. Lots yeah. of anger. Yeah. Well, then it's more like, what is happening? Yeah, I mean, I don't understand what is happening. Yeah, I get that. I totally get that. Oh, me too. I get that. Yeah, yeah, totally get that. But you, you've been good though, right? Had a great summer. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, really, really good. Yeah. Different, really different. Okay. But great. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you all about it later. Great, cool. Well, what about you, Sue? Uh, oh, me. Well, uh, well, summer. Let's see. Well, I had the shingles, but other than that, I found shingles. A decorative sturdy yeah, shelter no. from the weather for your roof. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, Mary, not, not, that kind of not that kind of shingles. Not that kind of shingles. I mean, but like the, the shingle shingles, yep. like the painful kind? Yep, 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 oh. yep, yep. Oh. yep. My okay. fault, my fault, my fault. I hadn't gotten the vaccination oh. yet. Oh. Well, there are so many vaccinations I know, there are too now. many vaccinations. Yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. But and, you know what? Like, I used to tease mercilessly those commercials. <laughs> the the shingles Oh, yeah, the shingles commercials. There's a million. You know, you know, especially the one, you know, the one that starts with the woman. She's riding her bike, and she says to the camera, "Well, I exercise." And then her image freezes, and the voiceover comes in and goes, "Well, shingles doesn't care." <laughs> what? And then, and then there's another one where, where there's a guy who goes, "Well, I eat healthy foods." Freeze frame. Shingles doesn't care. Okay. And on and on and on. And every time that ad comes on, I would yell at the TV, "Shingles!" You need to care. Okay. Why don't you care, Shingles? You need to stop that and start caring. And oh, I thought it was so funny. And bam. Karma. It's a bitch. Yeah, Did you yeah. know Taylor Swift sings, Karma is my boyfriend. Karma oh. is a god. Karma yes. is the breeze in my hair oh. on the weekend. Wow, Taylor okay. Swift. Love that girl. So, She's the best. Yeah. So it's, 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 I know it's the chicken pox virus right. that's just hiding inside everybody right. but what actually triggers shingles yeah stress oh well, well okay well they don't really know and it could be all sorts of things but stress is like meh, high on the list oh yeah. and stress is so tough stress is you really deserve tough. to let go of stress and give space to peace yeah, yeah okay you are right. so right miri so but that is so easier said than done you know this oh, yeah. letting go of stress this let go of stress well you know sue i like to walk when i'm feeling stressed well you could walk. see i know i do That's too good. i yeah. like to walk or ride my bike yes yeah, so I, I, I like both of those things see mm-hmm. but see my problem is i end up stressing 
about trying to find time sure. to release my stress. Yep. He's like, Sue, you have got to slow down right now. You've got to relax. Why don't you just take, right now, come on, stop doing this and go relax. Yeah, I've done that. And it that. doesn't yep. do any good. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know yep. what I'm saying? Yep. 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 yep, 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 yep. Okay, but if we were to, bi- I mean, walking, sure, on the island, but if right. we were to bike... I mean, where would we bike? There's no paths or anything. Well, just right on the beach. In the sand? Well, that would really? be really hard. Oh, I mean, yeah. It, yeah, yes, it would definitely be a workout. Well, yeah, but a little bit like a huffing and puffing workout? No, but it would be, a, it would be, it would be good for you, you know, for all of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, okay. But we wouldn't want to get bicycle face. You guys ever heard of bicycle face? What are you talking about, uh-huh. I'm sorry, just what, did you just, yeah. what do you... You said bicycle face? Yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. It's actually called bicycle face syndrome. Oh. Mary, please find... Bicycle face syndrome was first described in 1895 as a condition over the exertion and effort to maintain one's balance on a bicycle, what? leading to a wearied and exhausted bicycle face. Mm-hmm. A bicycle face is flushed, sometimes pale, often with lips drawn with the beginning of dark shadows under the eyes, and always with an expression of weariness. Sometimes this condition can result in a hard clenched jaw and bulging eyes. This condition, especially in women, can become permanent. Wait. You are making that up, Sue. You totally pre-programmed Mary. There's a no way. real thing. No way. And they had all these women in 1895 yeah. believing if they rode bicycles, they would get bicycle face. And their faces would freeze in a grimace, and their eyes would bulge out, and it would stay that way forever. Okay, okay. This is insane. It is totally That's, insane. No. It is, and you know the point of it? To stop women from enjoying the newfound freedom that bicycling brought to their lives. Of course. Yes. They could put a basket on the bike and they could ride to the store. And they wouldn't have to wait for the horse and carriage to come pick them up. Or they could enjoy some nature or be with friends or or, or get some exercise, right? Right. And and fashions changed. Bloomers were created, right? And a certain segment of the population hated this. They wanted their wives at home. So bicycle face syndrome was created to scare women away from exercising this newfound freedom. So they made up this stupid syndrome mm-hmm. and women bought it? Yes, for several years. Mary, 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 when was bicycle face syndrome finally debunked? In 1897, Chicago Dr. Sarah Hackett Stevenson said... Cycling is not injurious to any part of the anatomy as it improves the general health. The painfully anxious facial expression is seen only among beginners. As soon as a rider becomes proficient, can gauge her muscular strength and acquires perfect confidence in her ability to balance herself and in her power of locomotion, this look passes away. It took two years. Two years for a doctor to debunk this idiotic, completely made-up, fakey bicycle face syndrome to keep women at home thing. Because you know what? Bicycle face doesn't care. Okay, well, you know, I had never heard of that. Yeah, well, I'm sorry about that because bicycle face doesn't care. Why is it that... 
every time women, you know, are, are trying to exercise a little freedom, mm-hmm. it's seen as a threat. I know. Exercise your freedom at home, ladies, because Bicycle Face doesn't care. <laughs> okay, Sue, you can stop that now. Yeah, I don't think it. I can. It. All I can think of is saying Bicycle Face doesn't care. Okay, oh, Mary, why don't, can you make her stuff? Yeah, a la cara de bicicleta no le importa. Oh, oh, no, see? Mary, say it in Spanish. Okay. okay, what is happening? I, I think know. my what voice is, is stuck. I think I have a syndrome now. What? I can't say anything what? else, but Bicycle Face doesn't care. Oh, uh, we'll try, Sue. You have to try. <laughs> no, I, I think I, she I, has the syndrome. I'm try counting the ten. Ten's a good number. One bicycle. Two. That's working. Bicycle. Bicicleta. Three. Bicicleta. Cuatro. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Sylvia. And now, please welcome our musical guest. And here she is to sing a beautiful song from her new album, Jasper Lee Peck. wild as the weeds We were fearless and bold, strong queens of the desert sun and heat Without a care in the world We roamed through the streets Your house was a few doors down and you always welcomed me
tried to take you away I still hear the birds singing at first light I still hear the dogs barking late into the night home was a place I knew we hold our bodies keep hidden inside they betray all the plans we have made they eat us alive I wish I could know that heaven is real that we will dream once again in that place where everything is healed I never had a friend like you The kind that time throws your way Jasper, thank you for that beautiful song. So this uh, this song is about, it's a sort of a tribute to a friend of yours that you grew up with. Mm -hmm. You grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I did. As did I. Mm -hmm. Tell us what sort of uh, motivated you to write this song. Uh, so my friend Jen and I knew each other. We met when we were a year old. We were neighbors um, in Tucson. And we grew up together. Our moms had um, babies when we were three. So um, our sisters were born, and the four of us just kind of spent our childhoods like going across the street between each other's houses. And they had all the really good toys. My mom wouldn't buy Barbies, but they had like every single one. Oh, um, funny. We also had fun things at our house, too. My mom was really creative, so we had a lot of crafts and all that kind of stuff. So it was just like a really good balance. I felt so lucky to be a part of their family and to have them a part of our family. And um, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer in August of 2020. And she did not survive that. She did not. And so this is sort of a, a tribute to uh, how you want to remember, you know, sort of remembering that time with her. Yeah. yeah. And she was in treatment for almost two years before she passed away. Wow. And I wrote this song during that time, so I got to share it with her. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. 
Yeah, I mean, because yeah. I, you know, when you're a kid, you think everyone grows up the way you do. Yeah. And I felt so lucky to have that community as yeah. a child and to feel free and and loved and just like I belonged to a place and her family and her friendship really gave that to me. And she was also, um, you know, she, she traveled the world. She taught in China and Egypt and oh, she ended wow. up... Yeah, she ended up in um, Bristol in the UK, and she asked me to sing this at her memorial, and I got to go out there last fall. And oh, that. and you sang this. Mm-hmm. Wow, 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 wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, and that is, there again, that's on your new album. Mm-hmm. Now, this next song that you're going to sing is from an earlier album of yours called Desert Ghost, speaking of Arizona. Um, you were telling me you grew up in an evangelical church setting. Yes. And... Uh, you got messages loud and clear that rock music and other certain kinds of music were uh, bad. They were the devil's music. Pretty much. I yeah. mean, and this wasn't coming from my parents. This was coming from, from like, the youth group. From I went to church. private schools, and um, I really wanted to be devout and committed and be the best believer I could be. Yeah, so, so you were buying it. I was, like, listening to only Christian radio. <laughs> And um, and the oldie station was okay for some reason. So it was that combination. Um, so, yeah. And so then you were telling me that at some point somebody mentioned uh, the Rolling Stones, and you were like, "Who?" And that was like yeah. la- that was like last year or something, wasn't it? No, <laughs> no. I- I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm yeah. kidding. It was. She was in. Her, you were in her, your twenties. I was in my twenties. Yeah. I feel like I just you know a song would come on. In a restaurant, I'd be like, who is this? And they'd be like, that's the Rolling Stones, or that's the Grateful Dead. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? I mean, I would pre- I would pretend I knew what they were talking about. Because um, <laughs> I just, I missed a lot of music. And so I always felt like I was playing catch-up, and I didn't start um, writing my own songs until my early 20s either. So it all just happened at the same time. So then when you started writing your songs, you were just writing all these really heavy metal stuff, <laughs> banger stuff, right? No? No? Okay. No, super vulnerable folk songs. Okay, super <laughs> vulnerable folk songs. Okay, yeah. that makes up for not knowing who the Rolling Stones were. So this song that you're going to sing, you're asked to write a song based on a poem, and the poem spurred on these memories of, oh yeah, I grew up not hearing rock music much. Yeah, so I also grew, you know, grew up learning that a lot of yeah, a lot of things were labeled bad. Yeah. You know, like don't that's of the world, don't be of the world. Oh. And I missed out on a lot of good stuff that I'm trying to make up for now. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're going to read the poem and then sing the song. Yeah. yeah, so the story behind this is I was actually asked to I, d- I don't know this poet. Her name is AE Stallings. She was giving um, a poetry lecture series in Seattle when I was living in Seattle, and I was asked to read her collection and write a song inspired by it and then open for her, and it was a super fun um, project, and I found this tiny poem in this book called Triolet on a Line Apocryphally Ascribed to Martin Luther, and Martin Luther is the theologian who tacked those 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church. Um, And apparently he said, why should the devil get all the good music? (laughs) It's just an excellent question. So A.E. Stallings wrote, why should the devil get all the good tunes? The booze and the neon and Saturday night, the swain in darkness, the lovers like spoons. Why should the devil get all the good tunes? Does he hum them to while away sad afternoons and the long lonesome Sundays? Or sing them for spite? 
Why should the devil get all the good tunes, the booze, and the neon in Saturday night? Yes, and now here singing Why Should the Devil Get All the Good Tunes that she wrote based on that poem is Jasper Lee Peck. So I borrowed some lines with permission. Why should the devil get all the good tunes? The booze and the neon and the rhythm and blues the Swaying in the darkness and the lovers like spoons Why should the devil get all the good tunes? And why should the devil have all the real fun? The fire and the freedom and the coming undone The Saturday nights and the beating of the drums Why should the devil have all the real fun? Told me that the devil likes to dance Dressed up in the shadows Always looking for his chance Snake in the garden Wanna change my plans I think the devil is a music man Why should the devil get all the good tunes? Does he sing them on Sunday in those dim lit rooms? Rocking out the jukebox Making bad men swoon Why should the devil get all the good tunes? Why should the devil want to steal my soul? This wretched bowl of lonesome and this need to be a whole Just a lost little puppy always looking for a home Why should the devil want to steal my soul? My mama told me that the devil likes to dance Dressed up in the shadows always looking for his chance Snake in the garden want to change my plans I think the devil is a music man so good, what'll he have sold? Don't hear the music, wanna lose control. Feel the heavy rhythm, wanna rock and roll. God so good, what'll he have sold? Why should the devil get all the good tunes? songs that make you sweat, the songs that make you move, the songs that make you feel like you got nothing to lose. Why should the devil get all the good tunes? Why should the devil keep me up at night, whisper in my ear, do what I like, sounding so wrong but feeling so right? Why should the devil keep me up at night? My mama told me that the devil likes to dance, dressed up in the shadows, always looking for his chance. Snake in the garden, wanna change my plans. I think the devil is a music man. I think the devil is a music man. Why should the devil get all the good tunes? The booze and the neon and the rhythm and blues. The swaying in the darkness and the lovers like spoons. Why should the devil get all the good tunes? Thank you. If you lay it all out from start to finish, then my mom's name is Pamelia McGraw Mattis Custer Nigani Benny Sikwe Wiltsey. My mom was supposed to be a boy named Michael. Her mother was so sure that she was going to have a boy that she went into a full-on panic in the cramped delivery room at the hospital in southern Los Angeles when my mother was born. And the doctor suggested the name Pamela 
because he liked the name Pam. My grandmother, we called her Nana, said okay, and there it was. Fate, I guess. Well, I guess there was one more stop. In the clerical shuffling at the hospital, Pamela became Pamelia because an admin whom I pictured smoking while she typed on a typewriter under fluorescent lights accidentally typed an I between the L and the A in Pamela. No one ever tried to fix it because people just lived with stuff back then. You know, they, it's bad luck. Mistakes like someone's name on a card were filed under, oh well, that happened. Somewhat shocking now when you think about the outrage people express in very real ways online for things like, we had to wait a long time for our appetizers. <laughs> and so Pamelia was born. The flat A of Pamela gave way to a more lyrical, flowery sound like amaryllis. Pamelia, sort of like ameliorate, which means to make or become better. Fate has a way of getting her point across. My mom grew up in L.A., mostly getting by in school by telling everyone that her dad was Mexican. How else could her dark skin and hazel, almost yellow eyes make any sense? Most of the time, she was just complimented over and over by her blonde California classmates about her really gorgeous tan. My mom never knew her father, just a vague memory of being on a man's lap and playing with his hat. A good memory, but not exactly helpful and possibly from a movie. So my mom grew up with her mother's name, McGraw, took her stepfather's name, Mattis, and then married a man named Custer when she was 17 years old. I was born three years later, Shannon Marie Custer. My brother was born five years after me, Daniel Lee Custer. And then we moved to Minnesota, where I discovered that when you came up for air while swimming, your lungs didn't hurt because the air was so clean. So Custer, as in Custer. As it turns out, I'm related. Oh, well, that happened. <laughs> Custer is my great-great-great-great-great-uncle, something. Someone in my dad's family did the research and shared it at Christmas one year, and not the 23andMe situation where you spit in the tube. This was pre-internet with interviews, civic records, library visits, microfiche. This family discovery was well after I learned about General George Armstrong Custer in my seventh-grade American history class. My teacher, Mr. Fink, was so excited to finally be able to ask me if good old General George was a relation. That's how he said it, too. Are you a relation? Like we were in a saloon somewhere. <laughs> Mr. Fink started his whole lecture with that famous photo of Custer, the one that is on every book written about him, and he sort of half slid, half tossed the transparency onto the overhead projector, and yes, I just said overhead projector. Google it. <laughs> I give you General George Armstrong Custer. That's how Mr. Fink said it. I give you. What if we don't want him? <laughs> now, students, this is a very famous photograph of General Custer that he liked because it showed off his strong profile. He was also proud of his hair, the blondness of it in particular. And every time that Mr. Fink said Custer, that day, which was a significant number of times, I leaned a little closer to my spiral notebook, the one with the baby St. Bernard puppies on it in a basket. And every time Mr. Fink shared another fact about this man that made me cringe, I hunched over a little more at my desk, my name and indictment, my own blondness, suddenly evidence. So many of the facts about Custer's reign became darkly funny when you think about his end. 
Custer went to West Point, but was a mediocre student, wasn't very bright. He didn't read maps very well <laughs> and failed to even make general right away. But you guessed it, he thought he was better than he was. Mr. Fink actually made a joke about how Custer just didn't have an Achilles heel. He was an Achilles heel. <laughs> a strike that I have never forgotten. I should mention that I loved Mr. Fink's um, American history class and Mr. Fink. He didn't pull any punches, as my grandpa James Custer would say. White guys were not safe in Mr. Fink's class. His walls were filled with posters of black leaders and women, you know, history. <laughs> I slouched over my notebook a little more and wrote, not smart. Custer's wife, Elizabeth, was enraptured with him, even writing his biography, charmingly named Boots and Saddles. Yes, I own it, and yeah, I read it. <laughs> Elizabeth relies more on what she thought he was than what he was, and I wrote in my notebook, wife Elizabeth lied. <laughs> Mr. Fink continued, Custer actually did better in the Civil War than was expected. The lines of my notebook were blurring. It said Custer notes in my loopy seventh grade cursive at the top of the page, and I started underlining it every time I learned a new fact. Lakota and Cheyenne warriors, 5,000 Sioux, 1876, decided to go a day early. Plans didn't account for the military expertise of Indians. 210 dead, including Custer's brother, Tom Custer. Including Custer's brother, Tom. Including Custer's brother, Tom. Tom Custer, my, my father's brother is Tom. My uncle is Tom Custer. I had to take the little lead in my strawberry-scented pencil and replace it by pushing it through the back. Breathe, I felt a little sick. Annihilated, Custer's last stand, Battle of the Little Big Horn, Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull. They went after women and children. I can't see the page anymore. Led an anti-Lakota expedition with General Crook. General Crook? Crook and Custer were friends. My mom's sister married a man named Crook. Those were my cousins, the Crooks. Wait, Custer's wife was named Elizabeth. Eliz my Uncle Tom's wife is named Elizabeth. Tom Custer and Elizabeth Custer, I, I stopped taking notes. It was like that thing everyone always talked about during family dinners, the coincidences between Kennedy and Lincoln. Do you know this? Both were killed on a Friday, shot in the head, succeeded by men named Johnson. So Shannon, said Mr. Fink, I have been wanting to ask this all quarter. Are you a relation? Was I a relation? A year before we moved to Minnesota from our California suburb to a small town named Buffalo. What I didn't know that day, in Mr. Fink's American history class was that when summer came, a very tall indigenous man would come to our front door, which was weird because no one ever used the front door. You always just came in through the sliding glass door on the side, off the deck. And when this man came to our front door and I saw the color of his eyes, hazel, almost yellow, I said before he even spoke, you want my mom, don't you? And he nodded. As it turned out, my parents were at their bowling league that night. It was the 80s after all. And when my mom's cousin, Leon, walked into the bowling alley, she walked right up to him and said, you're looking for me, aren't you? Because she had never seen anyone who looked like her before. Just that memory of that man with the hat. Her cousin, Leon, drove what he called a res car all the way from Oklahoma to give my mom pictures of her father, who had just died. The car only went up to 50 miles an hour, so it took him a long time. The pictures were loose in an old shoebox, and my mom's dad's name was Sylvester, her family name is Youngblood. They are Cherokee. She is Cherokee. So my mom is an indigenous woman, and she says this out loud now. 
She knew some of this, not all of this growing up. It was just easier to nod and smile, to let other people decide. She is mixed race, as her mother was Irish. She, she passes, as in, oh, Pam, I love your tan. She code switches on a daily basis, but she did not grow up with these descriptors. This was not that sort of, I'm pretty sure we have Indian blood that seems to pepper so many conversations in Minnesota families. We had a shoebox of pictures to prove it. Pamelia was an honest-to-God Indian, an Indian named Custer. So Shannon, are you a relation? When my mom talked to her Aunt Sophie for the first time, my mom introduced herself, winding the olive green phone cord over her finger so that the tip of her finger turned white. Hi, this is... um. Pamelia, Pam, Pam Custer, and Aunt Sophie, 86 years old at the time, laughed so hard that my mom had to pull the phone away from her ear. <laughs> oh, sweetie, she cackled. I knew we'd get him eventually. <laughs> I was there at my mother's naming ceremony. This was years later, of course. My parents were divorced by then. She had left Custer behind. I wasn't so lucky. Yes, Mr. Fink. Yes, lady at the bank. Yes, Facebook. As it turns out, I am a relation. I've been married and divorced and remarried myself, and during that time, I tried to get rid of the name Custer, but that didn't work out. I'm stuck with this name, my father's name, General George's name, the guy who couldn't read maps. I want to make my own name. I want an error on a typed card, something to give me an out. I don't like being named Custer, but oh well, that happened. At the naming ceremony, I watched my mom become Nigani Benisikwe, which means head thunderbird woman. It smelled like sweet grass and cinnamon that day, and my mom cried. So, Shannon, said Mr. Fink, standing in front of a poster of Toni Morrison, are you a relation? No, I don't think so, I said, because at the time, in that seventh grade history class, I didn't know any better. But fate had other plans, and when my mom, Pamelia McGraw, Mattis Custer, Nigani Benisikwe, We'll see. Got married for the second and last time. It smelled like sweet grass and cinnamon. It was my turn to cry because she was finally happy and she knew exactly who she was. <laughs> Shannon, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. Who I'm touched. Okay, Jasper Leepak is back with her guitar. And this next song, Jasper, is the title song off your new album, yes. So Strong. And uh, just give us a quick, uh, uh, what, is the, what was the impetus for this song? Um, it was a book, actually. Um, the book called Like a Mother by Angela Garbez, which I recommend strongly to everyone, about pregnancy and the culture and science of pregnancy. And she had a, a section in her book where she talked about that pressure that we put on women to return to their pre-pregnancy shape after they have a baby and how it is so wrong. Like to go back to who you were doesn't make any sense. And um, when I read this book, I had had my daughter about a year earlier and I felt like the song had been waiting to be written because after I had given birth, I had never felt so strong in my body. Yeah. And what accompanied that new found sense of strength was this feeling of shame that I looked different. And I just wanted to write a song that spoke to that lie. Like it's, I don't know, kind of like 
uh, the bicycle face. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. No, I just, know. Yeah, exactly. you, you have this new strength and immediately our culture just diminishes it and makes you feel small and doesn't give you room to embrace it. So I wanted to write a song called So Strong. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Beautiful. Here's Jasper Leafpack with Zippy Lasky backing up. So Strong. It strikes like lightning Shatters the sky Rolls through you like thunder Cracks your world open wide You ride the waves As you push through the pain You have never felt so strong It pulls like quicksand Swallows the ground, you're caught in a riptide You can't swim your way out You lean into the flow As you learn to let go You have never felt so strong But the world doesn't want your strength It expects you to find your way back to your old shape To your old shape It moves like a river Sweeps you away Say goodbye to your old self You will never be the same You are more than you were You give more than you take You have never so strong but the world doesn't want your strength it expects you to find your way back to your old shape to your old shape and then she's with you Press to your skin, her eyes wide open, just taking you in. You hold her gaze, so in love and so amazed, you have never felt so strong. You have never felt so strong. But the world doesn't want your strength. It expects you to find your way back to your old shape, to your old shape, to your old shape, and forget your strength. Jasper, thank you so much. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. So, um, feeling the heartbreak that is permeating so much of the news right now, and as I try to pay attention, right, and look for opportunities to get involved or maybe send in donations or reach out to friends who might be directly affected by these tragedies, both nationally and globally, I wonder, I keep wondering, if there's a 
a way to remain hopeful and to actually allow ourselves to celebrate possibilities. So, I had my baby this past September on the 8th. That means she'll be three months tomorrow. <laughs> and wow, does time fly by. You know, at two months, I had to get out her three to six months clothing because she no longer fit zero to three. She just arrived in this world and clothing, which of course at the time I wasn't even thinking of looking at, was already being unpacked. I didn't even get to cycle through all her outfits, which was unbelievable because I did not buy her plethora of zero to three outfits. You know, I was simply taking my sweet time, getting to her cute little onesies and pattern-footed PJs, thinking I had more time. Well, it wasn't that I didn't have time. It's that my daughter was growing faster than I thought she would, which is great. I just had a moment. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I cried. I know I did. It's silly. You know, I cried while I changed her, you know, feeling both happy and sad. You see, when she was born, she spiked a fever not even 48 hours old and had to be sent to the NICU. And she just looked so tiny and little in the newborn clothing we borrowed. And those days that felt so long waiting for good news to take her home were now a thing of the past. You know, she had grown so much. You know, she was thriving and was a healthy baby. And my mind just leaped thinking about how before I knew it, she's going to be off to college and chasing down this entire world. You know, her dreams. God, I hope she chases her dreams. You know, I named her Clarity after her Hmong name, Shitty which translates to bright heart. If you're wondering, there aren't any correlations with these words. It's more that clarity fits our intentions of the name Xieti. In the Hmong culture, names are spiritually very important. Your name is your base as a person. So for example, my name is Deiting Shua, which means water falling smoothly, like the way a waterfall falls. My mom wanted me to be able to flow like the water, but be strong enough to erode troubles that I may encounter. When I thought about my child going through life and the struggles she may face, I hoped that her own strength would be what gave her light in the darkness. And whatever path she chooses to take in life, she would shine. That's what Shitty invoked for us. Her name is the blessing my husband and I gave her before she was born. This blessing was given thinking about the infinite possibilities she could have. And as much as I wish time could slow down, I am so excited to see what she becomes. You know, will she be an actor like her mom or an artist like her dad? Will she be passionate and industrious or will she be quiet and observant? Will she go into the STEM field? What if she completely pivots and becomes a zoologist? Will she like spreadsheets? It's a real question because we like spreadsheets. Regardless, she has the whole world to explore with her big bright heart and she will have us by her side every step of the way in her name. Clarity Shetty Hyung.
And the first part of the definition is able to be done. What is able to be done? This is a time when it seems like many things should be possible, should be able to be done. Passing the ERA so women can be in the Constitution. Restoring reproductive rights. Not electing a criminal autocrat. And yet things don't always feel possible. So what's possible? What feels possible? Keep trying. Just keep trying. That's possible for me. That I can do. It occurred to me There's still so far to go All the magic we have yet to know Feels impossible but I will try, try, try. Okay, Will, what's possible for me? I'm looking forward to becoming a happy person. Yeah. See, my father-in-law, who was like a father to me, recently passed away. If I could describe him to you, I would say that he fought bravely in the trenches of Korea when he was 18 years old and that he faithfully took care of his wife all his life because when they were newlyweds, she got a terrible disease that would live with them for the rest of their lives. I also can tell you that he was a living miracle who had undergone three major surgeries, heart surgeries, and lost his leg because of diabetes. He passed away at 92. But the most people remember about him is that he was the happiest man alive. It's true. He never complained about a thing. Whenever he was out, he always made new friends, 
waiters, the cooks, kids, puppies, and even grumpy people. Especially grumpy people. <laughs> yeah, he would always make people laugh. He was always making someone's day. Even the day before he passed during hospice, he was telling jokes and made everybody laugh. <laughs> That's who he was. And that always intrigued me, especially in the last few days. I always thought, how could a person be happy even on their deathbed? Look, I don't know about you, but if a genie asks me today what my wish is, I would say, I want to be happy, right? Forget about riches and if they will make me unhappy, right? Simple. So, because I have no genie, I decided to find out how achievable happiness is, if that's a possibility. So in my quest, I came across a book by Arthur Brooks, a Harvard professor who teaches happiness from a neuroscientific perspective and explains that humans' natural state is happy. We can see it in toddlers. We were delightfully happy at one point, but we forgot. So, I'm learning that happiness is not a feeling. Happiness, like love, is action. With some practice, we all can be not only happy, but happier each and every day. I am excited about the future because I see now what is achievable, what is possible. And I imagine my father-in-law nodding and smiling at me as I make my way to become a happier person. It was like a dream when I opened my eyes there in front of me Like a carnival ride possibilities floating up in the sky, sky, sky It occurred to me there's still so far to go All the magic we have yet to know feels impossible But I will try, try, try to do one possible thing each day To make the world a better place When I think about what's possible, I think about the newly elected members of the St. Paul City Council, which is now an all-female council. And it's not only that the seven members of the council are mostly women of color, or that they're all under 40, or that this is the only city in the country the size of St. Paul with an all-female council. It's all of it. Yes, when I, when I think about what's possible, I think about our city, the city I live in, and Day and Sylvia live there too, St. Louis Park. It's an inner ring suburb bordering Minneapolis who just elected a young Somali-American woman named Nadia Mohammed to be our new mayor. It's not only that Nadia is the first black mayor of St. Louis Park or that she was first elected to the city council at 23 years old and now at 27 she will be our new mayor or that she is the first Somali-American female to be elected mayor in U.S. history. It's all of it. 
When I think about what's possible, I think about Claudia Golden, the 77-year-old professor from Harvard who just won the Nobel Prize in Economics for her research in, wait for it, the gender pay gap. It's not only that she's just the third woman in history to win the Nobel Prize in Economics, or that she's being lauded for her decades of studies done on the cause of pay disparities between genders, or that she's still very actively teaching at Harvard. It's all of it. When I think about what's possible, I think about 33-year-old Taylor Swift. It's not only that she's a gazillion award-winning superstar, or that she was just named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, or that she is actively and aggressively encouraging her young followers to register to vote, which they are doing in droves, prompting several Republican congressmen to call for the raising of the voting age to 30. It's all of it, right? Okay, Taylor Swift is person of the year. Liz Cheney sits down with Rachel Maddow. Amidst this heartbreak globally in the heated confusion nationally, there are possibilities worth celebrating. Yes. Yes. Is it going slow or skipping stones? Helping small things grow. I keep searching far and wide for what's right beneath my nose. Laying down in the grass, feeling the world spinning. Shannon Custer. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so thinking about possibilities, as we know, there's this concerted effort for many in the country, and including the fierce advocates in the room tonight, to finally pass an equal rights amendment. Yes. And the ultimate goal, of course, is the an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, of course, of course. But in the meantime, until that happens, states are taking matters into their own hands, right? And then to refresh our uh, memories of this 100-year journey, we bring you the Ballad of the ERA. <laughs> the ERA, it's coming for you, that ERA. In 1923, the Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced to Congress. 
by Alice Paul and Crystal Eastman. Both were suffragists. They had just gained the vote three years prior with the successful 19th Amendment and believed the next step towards full equality for women and men meant passing the ERA. But it didn't happen because everyone was frightened of what equal rights really meant. The ERA, it's so scary, that ERA. So they tried again in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s too. But it went down every time since no one could agree as to what exactly to do with the ERA. Is it equal rights in the Constitution, the 14th Amendment? Don't women need special provisions because they're women? Are we really equal? The ERA, do we really need it? That ERA. The second wave came in the 1970s with stars like Stein and Ferdinand and Chisholm. In 72, it passed both houses and was sent to the states for ratification. They need 38 states to approve, but by the deadline, just 35 were a lock. The only one happy was Phil Schlafly, who convinced others to block the ERA against their own best interests. While she traveled around the country telling women to stay home and raise their children, her husband stayed home and raised their children. <laughs> what was she afraid of? Herself? The ERA, it's too much freedom, that ERA. In 77, Rosalind Carter said yes, and Betty Ford with Coretta Scott King too. And President Jimmy signed a bill to extend the deadline till 82 for ratifying the ERA. There was International Women's Year, the National Women's Conference, Women's Equality Day, proclamations were everywhere, but ratification still elusive. The ERA, it's just too hard, that ERA. Since then, tireless advocates like our own Betty Foliard have kept the pressure mounting. And in 2020, Virginia became the 38th state. Woo! Woo! But the archivist said he would not be counting the ERA as an official amendment to the Constitution. Other states have since rescinded, he said, even if that's not constitutional. Yep, one guy in an office, afraid of equality not taking his calls, probably hiding under a desk. <laughs> the ERA, I thought we passed it, that ERA. So now with authors like Mary Kunish, Minnesota will pass their own bill. <laughs> Navigating myths and tactics to stall, but showing a true voice of will to pass the ERA. Equality under the law shall not be abridged or denied by this state or any of its cities, counties, or other political subdivisions on account of race, color, creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, age, disability, ancestry, or national origin. 
The ERA it'll make us equal. That ERA. 60% of Minnesotans are for it. The ERA the time is right to pass the ERA. Rosalind Carter and Betty Ford, the think about it. ERA, it's so bipartisan. That ERA. We all want to feel seen, right? The ERA. We're gonna pass it. That ERA. It's just equality for everyone. ERA. It's coming for ya. That ERA. Thank you so much for that. Now, please help me welcome my guest for the conversation, Mary Kunish. Come on, Mary. Thank you. Thank this you has coming. been just fabulous. What oh, an well, entertainment. Thank you, thank you for thank coming. Thank you, all of you that prepared so hard and that song That's was That's what we do. We're fabulous. discarded women. We do this. This is what we do. <laughs> Okay, so I'm just going to go through a little bit of your bio before I start asking you some questions. So you are currently the, a Minnesota state senator. Yes. Having been first elected to the Minnesota House in 2016 mm -hmm. and then to the Senate in 2020. Yeah. You are a descendant of the Standing Rock Lakota tribe. Yep. And you are the first indigenous woman to serve in the Minnesota Senate. Yes. You are also the founding member of the Native American and People of Color and Indigenous Caucuses. Mm -hmm. You are the Senate author, need I say, of the Minnesota ERA bill that's coming up this next session, right? You were an educator in the public school system for over 25 years. Yep. In, you were a middle school library specialist. Library media specialist. Oh, library media specialist. I've got one right. that, there's one in the audience, another one in the audience that I work with. A library with. media specialist? Yes. Really? Yes. We'll have a special show just about library media specialists. <laughs> um, and this informs your, your views to and your desire to fully fund education for all children in Minnesota. 100%. Yeah. Um, adding to your advocacy for native issues and gender justice, your focus includes protecting our environment mm -hmm. for future generations, ending gun violence, please, 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 and strengthening family economic security. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about that in a second, but I want to jump right in with the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force. Okay, so this was your idea uh, to create a task force here in Minnesota. You were a newly elected, you were a freshman representative in 2016, and you were influenced by a study you saw done in Canada about this issue. Yep. And it was like, hey, this is a crisis. Why can't we do this here? No one is paying attention to the generational trauma affecting Native women, girls, and um, two-spirit people. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the House was led by Republicans. Yep. And they wanted data and facts. Mm -hmm. And you're like, all right, damn it, we'll give you data and facts. So you put together this, this amazing process. I read, it's like 100 pages long, their report that they came up with two years later. It's so comprehensive. Tell us a little bit about just sort of your, your initial impetus to start the task force and to, to treat this crisis as, uh, head on. Yeah, it was, um, it really was sort of a, an awakening to me 
what my role as a legislator could be or should be, but um, I had just completed my first session uh, in the Minnesota House. I was in the minority, um, and that summer I listened to a report um, from the BBC on Canada's report on their missing and murdered Indigenous women. And the whole trauma, the generational trauma, the murders and the missing women was not new to me, but there had never been any kind of concerted effort to really pay attention to it. And so I listened to that report and thought, man, oh man, we need to do something about this. And then that was the same summer that um, a young woman up in the Fargo-Moorhead went missing. Um, Savannah Gray Wynne LaFontaine. She was 28 years old, eight months pregnant, went to um, a neighbor called her, asked her to come up and visit them. She went up there and uh, from that point on, nobody saw her alive again. And uh, the family was concerned, her partner was concerned, they called the police. The police said, you know, just give her some time. You need to wait a while. We'll figure it out. Well, days went by, and within Indian country, we were all hearing about that. Um, people had actually started to go out and look for her themselves, um, but it was not until they found her body floating in the river, and the baby had been cut from her womb. Yeah, right, right. And the sensationalism of it. Right made the media start to pay attention. Wow. The baby was found in the home of those neighbors. They had conspired to to steal her baby and throw her away. And that's kind of the story of our Native people. Right. And so with that report and that situation, I thought, oh, and then North Dakota all of a sudden put together this legislation, and I thought, oh, my God, if North Dakota is doing this. Yeah, right, hello. <laughs> Minnesota. Hello. Uh, if Canada is doing this, why are we not doing that? And then I kind of had this epiphany and thought, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. That's that's my job. Yeah. And, and you so, did it. And I did it. Yeah, I did it. I know. And, and what was so great is, is you were saying there again, She's a freshman representative uh, in the party in the minority. And you were talking about, well, I was new, but I also just figured out very quickly how to make friends or how to compromise or how to reach across the aisle kind of a thing. And you were very effective. Yeah, I still to this day am, am um, kind of blown away when I look back because it was not easy. I didn't know the process. There wasn't a step-by-step, here's how you create a task force. Yeah. Um, I, but I did go out into the community and I gathered up a lot of our, our Native folks that were all doing the work around violence against women and asked them to come meet with me. And we had this huge table of women. We had people on the phone. That was before Zoom. And I said, if we do this bill, what would you like it to look like? What is the objective? What do you want the outcomes to be? And who would you want to be on this task force? And they really are the ones that guided the legislation yeah, and wow. refined all of it. Yeah. And um, as a, you know, we were in a split legislature, uh, I had to find a way to bring all of these people together. Yes, right. And it was not easy, but it was like destined to be because I would get to an, a dead end and, and I couldn't get a hearing and somehow a door would open, something would happen and we'd scurry through that. And wow. it was just a maze until uh, the second year when we finally 
finally got a hearing and it was because, uh, so I grew up in Sartell and there is a state representative, uh, O'Driscoll, and he grew up with my family. His father was the, the local uh, police officer. So there was many a time he drove oh. up the alley to our house. I have a lot of brothers. And so we <laughs> knew the family. And um, he came to me and he said, I know how important this bill is to you. I know how important this bill is to your family. I will hear your bill. Wow. So he literally heard the bill the last day before our deadline. It was the last hearing of the day, and the room was packed. The hearing wow. room was packed. Yeah. Um, and there were, I mean, folks came in to hear this bill, and there was hardly a dry eye in the room. Uh, we had a number of Native women come and tell their stories. Wow. Some, their wow. grandmothers, their aunties, their sister, they themselves, mm-hmm. you know, had been abducted raped, beaten, left for dead, and survived to tell the story. And that moved this whole process. Wow. Yeah. Wow, congratulations. I mean, for sticking with it. And and as you said, you you sort of felt that this was sort of your, I don't know, your mission, your passion. But it was successful. Mm -hmm. And it's being implemented now. Yep. And there was a recent uh, search in Bemidji. Yeah. It was sort of that what the task force had been working on for two years. It was it was that in play. Yeah, it was incredible. There's a young woman, Nevea, that went missing, and um, at the end of our task force is a whole list of objectives that we want to continue to work on. And the number one thing was to create a permanent office of missing and murdered Indigenous relatives. And we did that. Yes. So now we have this brilliant director, Juliet Rudy, who is, and she's put together an incredible staff. Um, they organized a search up in Bemidji uh, for Nevea to find any kind of evidence. And they brought in the community. They brought in the indigenous tribes. Um, they brought in search dogs and wow. organizations yeah. that are national search teams. And it was incredible. It was just like walking into a war room and the organization and um, the sophistication of the process was just mind-boggling to me but um, I hope that this is um, is what we're going to see again and again the beginning of of, of really making sure that we're paying attention when somebody goes missing like that wow so your mother is Lakota yep yep and your dad is not indigenous nope yeah no he's Scottish and Czech Scottish and Czech. Yeah. But you said he was a, he's an AIM card carrying member from like teenager or the something. The very beginning. Yeah. And I have his original card. Oh, you do? I have his original um, AIM card and it never expires. And so, oh, it doesn't. No, so I. I'll get him. I've got it oh. hanging. I've got it hanging on my uh, refrigerator in a bag. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Sweet. He sweet. was um, my mother's father. Was a very gregarious, um, very handsome man. Everybody loved Ted Kelly, and my father really adored him as well, and was very, very sympathetic and interested in the stories that he had to share of his life and his family had um, experienced the boarding school and relocation and Mm -hmm. all of those things. Uh, And he was a fierce advocate for the indigenous issues at that day. Um, Did a lot of work with the tribes, pro bono. He was a lawyer. Yeah, he was a lawyer. He was at one time city attorney for St. Cloud and uh, Stearns County attorney. 
but he um, did a lot of work with the tribes, never charged them anything for it. And he used to take us up to um, the different reservations yeah, when he was doing yeah. his work when we were little kids. So I come from a family of 13 children. And I think my dad looked for opportunities to get us kids out of the house to give my mom a break. Yeah. And he would load us into the Volkswagen van and take us all over the place. Um, and I remember him taking us up to some of the reservations, to the smelt fries, to the powwows. And um, I remember one time, and I think it was Malax, where we were driving through the backwoods, and the homes there were were really hardly more than a shack, and the roads were not paved, mm -hmm. and um, we thought it was kind of cool, wouldn't it be cool to live out here in these woods? Yeah. But one thing that happened is as we drove down the roads, if there was anybody out in front, and especially kids, um, when our car started to drive up, they would all scatter. Oh. And and I remember us asking, like, why are they running away from us, you know, a car full of kids. And that's when my dad told us about how social workers and, and yeah. religious orders or whatever would come up to the home, look at it, say this is unfit for children, and just take the children. and. Right put them into foster care. Minnesota has the highest rate uh, to this day of removal of Native kids from their homes, put wow. into the foster care system permanently, wow. and then adopted out. And um, that's another thing that I work on is ICWA and, and the Minnesota Indian Preservation Act. But I'll never forget that. We just thought that was the most horrible thing. Yeah, right. And it is. It is absolutely But horrible. I mean, that it sort of left you an impression with you as far as... Yep. The you shared with, it's on your website too, and you share a personal story about um, some 25 years ago when you were, uh, and this has informed a lot of what you're focused on in the legislation as well as far as economic security. Um, you were a newly single mother mm -hmm. uh, of three, and you were going to school to complete your teaching degree. Yep. And you had a job lined up, mm -hmm. and then because of circumstances, um, that job was put on hold unexpectedly which left you with no income. Pretty you, much. Yeah, and you had three kids and, a, and rent, and you finally decided to reach out for assistance, yeah. but that was a really, really hard, hard decision for you. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, and even to this day, taking welfare, taking money from the state government is, you know, seen as sort of the shameful, embarrassed sort of thing. Yeah, I had just finished my, I was 35 years old, three kids, and finished my teaching degree in December. And I had lined up a job with Minneapolis Public Schools, but then the government went on shutdown. And I couldn't apply. What year was that? So that would have been 95, oh, okay. 90, early 96. Okay. And, you know, I had saved enough money. I'd been doing childcare, um, home daycare, and saved up enough money so I could do my student teaching because when you student teach, you don't get paid. Right. You're working full time. Right. And then you're coming home and getting everything ready. Um, and so I thought I had saved up enough money, but by that December and I looked at my checkbook it was like wow this is going to be really there's no way I'm going to do this if I can't get my a teaching job so I did I went down and applied for welfare and and because of the work that my dad had done I remember him at one time saying you know assistance 
is not something to be shameful. It's there to help you when you need the help. Not a way of life, but people should not be ashamed to ask for that money. And that really resounded yeah. in my in my mind. And I mean, what other choices did no, I, really I know. have? You used the word fill in the gap. Yeah. 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 And then you did get your teaching license and you did become yeah. a teacher. Yeah. Or for a middle years. school media specialist. Library media specialist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that we're in your sort of personal life, in June of 2022, the Star Tribune did a, um, an article that profiled a handful of people, and you're one of them. And the title was Life Before Roe v. Wade. And people are sharing their stories about tricky illegal abortions. And you shared a very personal story of, at 17, you were sexually assaulted. Yep. And that resulted in a pregnancy. Yep. And you weren't sure what to do, who to tell. You had gotten the message loud and clear from your mother that all you girls were never to get pregnant or there would be a, what did you call it, a... Terrible estrangement. Terrible estrangement. <laughs> Quote, unquote. <laughs> right. So, of course, that didn't feel like an open door for you. or to, No, no way. But you finally told your sister. Mm-hmm. And she told you to go to Planned Parenthood. Yeah, so I was still living, you know, in Sartell, St. Cloud. And I really didn't know what to do. And um, as I said, I came from this really large family. And my mom did the best that she could. Um, but it was not, she was not the kind of woman that you could go to. And she, you never talked about your bodies. You never talked about menstruation or any anything about your body. And um, my oldest sister was like almost like a second mom to me. She was just a wonderful, wonderful um, human being. And she, at one point, brought home that book, Our Bodies, Ourselves. Yes, sure. And she had to keep it hidden between the mattress. But she brought it out and showed it to us. And we saw the pictures and read things that we never, you know, who even knew that your body does those things or look like that. And, and well, all it of happened that. to your mother at least 13 times. Yes, so. at least. Um, so she was the one that I went to. There were things that were happening to my body that I didn't understand, and I was having some like major pain. Well, it turned out you were having ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, so she lived at that time, she was married and lived down in Red Wing. And so I talked to her and I explained what happened. I hadn't told anybody what had happened. You know, it's just one of those things you sort of bury away. And she's the one that took me to Planned Parenthood because I didn't know if my parents had insurance and I wasn't going to go to the doctor in St. Cloud because then they would call my mom and dad. And um, I didn't have money. She didn't have money. So we went to Planned Parenthood. Um, They did an exam. They sent me to another clinic where they confirmed the ectopic um, pregnancy. I didn't even know what that was. Sure, sure, right. And seventeen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Long story short, you could have died. I could have died, and the pain was pretty intense. And they helped me with it. They gave me some medication and looked over me, and my sister took care of me. And um, we never told anybody. It was it was her and me. Oh, you you yeah, you didn't tell anybody. I hadn't told anybody. In fact, you just told my son is here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it it really wasn't until um, the Me Too movement came and people were putting their stories out there and 
on social media once I tweeted um, something like, maybe someday I'll tell my story. And, um, and then everybody goes, no, tell it now. Well, n nobody really said anything until I that? was on camera oh. with a, a reporter. <laughs> and they're like, well, I read this on your thing. You said, someday I'll tell my story. What is your story? And I was like deer in the headlight, like, oh my god. I. I couldn't deal with it at that the moment. The great estrangement, it's going to happen. The great <laughs> estrangement is going to happen. And she could tell I was jarred, and we went on to something else. Um, but it wasn't until um, I went through a divorce, and I was talking to a counselor. And for some reason, I just blurted it all out wow. and got it all out. Yeah. And this just wasn't like in the last three or four years. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. yeah. So it, that secret was tight to my sister and me, and she has since passed away from a, a, a brain tumor. And so mm. in a way, that story yes. kind of died with her. But because of the, the Me Too movement, because of the sensitivity and um, people not blaming you for circumstances that were beyond your control, right. um, I've been able to start to deal with it. And it, it does feel like a huge huge um, weight has been lifted off of my wow, shoulders. Terrific. Yeah. When you bury something that deep and yeah. for so long, right. um, it's a hard thing. And and um, I'm just very thankful that at some point I'm able to talk about it in public. I, well, yes. <laughs> oh, and, but but uh, no, isn't, I know, it's very courageous. Yeah. And, and you, were, you were telling me that one of the things that came up for you even when you were doing this article with the Tribune was thinking about the 17-year-olds in certain states around the country now yeah. who don't have a Planned Parenthood to go to. It's so interesting being at the legislature because oftentimes we legislate from our life experiences and our yeah. learned experiences yeah, sure. and the stories that people bring to us and tell us like their deepest, darkest things yeah. and are asking for help. Yeah, right. And, you know, I just feel really fortunate um, to be in this time, in this place and in this position to make a change, make a difference, listen to them, and then um, hopefully make some positive changes. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about, talk about making positive changes, is getting this ERA bill passed. Yes. Well, it, you know, how it, do you feel about that, the possibilities? I, I'm really optimistic, but this is not the first time that I have passed an ERA bill. When I was in the Minnesota House, we actually passed... Um, the old traditional uh, ERA, we changed the word sex to gender, and um, our Republicans on the other side really had an issue with that word gender. Oh, yeah. Ow. They just didn't scary. understand so gender. So scary. Why yeah. can't we just say sex? Yeah. We had to go through the whole explanation, and then they distorted it and made it really ugly and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it did pass off the floor of the house. Oh, okay. So I passed it once in the mm -hmm. house. Uh, this past year, I passed it off the floor of the Senate. Senate. Yeah. So it's up to the house to bring it up. Um, they can amend it. There is a team of lawyers and um, activists and all kinds of groups looking at it now, fine-tuning it, um, and hopefully the house will pass it off of their floor. And um, if we can either bring it back to the Senate 
as amended and vote on it again. So that would be the third time I would pass an ERA bill. But this does not put the ERA automatically into our Constitution. What this does is it puts the statement on the ballot. And then in the next election, um, the people of Minnesota can check that box that said, yes, we want this. And they will. Yes. Because the polls, the 60% want that box, want that amendment. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Mary, for coming today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And sharing yourself and all what you're working on and what's in your heart and your soul. And I really, really appreciate it. Mary Konish, everybody. Mary Konish. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mary Konish, please. Please, please, please. (laughs) Thank you. All right, that's our show for tonight, everybody. I'm just going to thank some people here. Mary Konish again, please. And Jasper Liebach. And Shannon Custer. Jay Yang, Sylvia Pontaza, Zebby Lasky. Thank you to our live captioner, Marsha Busson. Thanks to our engineer, John Robinson, and our wonderful crew, Kate Sandvik, and Kathy Tower. Thank you for taking our pictures. Welcome to the welcome to the island. And thank you to our amazing volunteer, Carolyn Denton, and to the Crooner Supper Club. And thank you to Nancy Scott and David O'Connor for paying for the accessibility elements for tonight. Please visit our website at islandofdisheartedwomen.com and find out about our next shows and everything else. And we'll be back soon with another live Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Good night.